who gets to decide on whether we get to nurture the gifts and strengths of each individual child or whether we say, no, leave all of those at home. And if, it, if you don't fit, we're going to share them out lot so that you can fit into the system. And it may or may not match up to the standardized expectation of Western education and federal policy, but the confidence that gets generated when you have a sense, strong sense of belonging to your community provides a different way of thinking about what learning and teaching might be. When you can tell the story of your community, you can validate or you can own your narrative. You can offer a lens, a perspective that people can be able to see a little bit about what's actually happening in their community and not to make standardized psychometric judgments based on a set of numbers only. Welcome to the Coconut TV Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid News. This is the first episode of the fourth season of the Coconut Thinking Podcast. This season, we will continue to push the boundaries of thinking and sometimes what is acceptable uh, in most discourse about education. We're going to frame the conversation in terms of what could be, what might be, not necessarily what should be, but different visions for a different narrative. We really want to put in a post-human lens here post-human being moving beyond the human, beyond humanism towards a way of thinking, a way of feeling that embraces all life, not just human, but also everything within the natural world of which humans are part. We're going to try to include more voices that aren't necessarily heard from women, from indigenous communities, uh, and from anyone who is really challenging the system uh, in order to create new ways of thinking about learning and how action can help move towards the thriving of the bio-collective. Today's guest is Don Sang, whose Hawaiian name is Kaui, who works at the Department of Education in Hawaii. And what's particularly interesting about this conversation is that Hawaii has gone through a period of transformation in order to be much more place-based, context-based, and bringing the Hawaii back into Hawaii. And this within the structures of a federal education system, within the structures of public schools, within the structures of having to work with different communities and stakeholders uh, in a public education setting, and of course, the university tracks that often follow. So the tensions between bringing Hawaii back into the education system, as well as having that be nested within the more traditional federal education system, as well as the other parts of the way our society works, really is a wonderful story of trying to live within the community and challenging some of the narratives within quote-unquote acceptable boundaries. I'm going to leave space here for my conversation, but I really hope that there will be valuable lessons for everyone, as well as ways to think about what is possible, even in more systemically traditional spaces. We look forward to hearing your comments and thoughts on www.coconut-thinking.design. That's www.coconut-thinking.design. And of course, you can find our articles and those of other educators and writers on Intrepid Ed News, www.intrepidednews.com. In the meantime, I'm leaving space for my conversation with Kawi. Well, hello, Kawi. I'm really excited to have you join the podcast. I um, uh, heard of your work through uh, Gary Chapin, uh, who was on the podcast uh, only a couple months ago, and uh, we had an initial conversation. I, I just wanted to really dig deeper into some of the things that we talked about and get your view about uh, some of the really the exciting things that are going on in Hawaii, uh, some of the exciting things that are going on in education, and really this um, bringing about of a new story um, and really, which is an old story uh, and and how that comes back together. But the first thing I'll ask is, uh, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Thank you for that question or for those questions. Um, You know, as I thought about how to introduce myself, I kind of was going back and forth. Um, My name is Dawn Koilani-Sang. I'm a Hawaiian daughter. I am a Hawaiian granddaughter. Um, of many, many, many kupuna, many, many generations. Um, I'm a Hawaiian mother who hopes that one day I will be a Hawaiian kupuna as well um, and have many mo'opuna 
school, staying here in Hawaii and taking care of Hawaii, um, and sustaining Hawaii, the aina that 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 feeds and has fed my family for generations. I think the question about what story I'd like to tell, I, I kind of was going back and forth like, oh, what story should I actually tell? Um, one of uh, I, I've been privileged to to be in and share space with um, one of the hulukupuna of our, of, of, our, of our kind, her name is Antipuanani Burgess. Um, and I wanted to bring her in the circle uh, in, in, in this discussion because she always asks us in the work that she does around building beloved community um, to share three stories, the story of your name, the story of your community, and the story of your gift. Um, I'll, I'll jump past the story of my name and sort of leave the story of my gift for perhaps someone else to share. Um, and I thought that maybe I'll tell a story about my community um, and the many communities that I come from. I was born and raised um, in a small town on the east side of the southeast side of, of the island of Oahu in Hawaii um, in a town called Waimanalo. Um, I was raised uh, on a section of Aina land that was designated as the Hawaiian homestead community of Waimanalo. My father and my mother raised seven children together in the home, um, in, in our family home that still stands today, um, uh, and that my brother and my sister currently live in. Um, um, but the interesting thing about that community or, or, or that this community that I come from was that my grandparents lived right around the corner from where I lived. And so they were always in, in our space. And my dad's sister raised her family two doors up from us. And so we were always with those cousins. And my dad's uncle was four doors up from us. And so we were very close to um, his his uncle and their fa and his family. Um, I think just in that community alone, my mom's of my mom's nine brothers and sisters, seven seven of them chose Waimanalo as the place that they would raise their families. And so, this concept of ohana or family um, was really uh, a strong uh, strong value um, growing up. But I think. The reason I chose to tell the story about this community, if you will, or this Ohana, if you will, is because I think the values that we learned because we were always around Ohana um, continue to feed us, continue to sort of guide um, each and every one of us in the, what we call the fourth generation cousins, um, each and every one of us, um, when we convene together, or when we don't convene and we do our own, we go our separate ways and do the work that we all do separately. Um, I think we're all guided by the same values of, of really just um, showing aloha, showing love and showing care um, in everything that we do, not just with our blood relatives, but, um, but for the places that we come from, uh, for the people that are outside of our blood relations that help to raise us in our community. Um, and then for the new relationships um, that we've that we've uh, uh, gained and nurtured um, as we became adults and, and kind of moved on um, into our own separate spaces. And so I share this I share this story about Ohana and the Ohana that I come from and the community that I come from because a lot of what what I do in the work and in my professional career with the Hawaii Department of Education. Uh, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to bring that value system and, and, and sort of feel comfortable using that uh, in, in, in our Hawaii public education system. Um, I think it's almost like an unapologetic uh, uh, function uh, in, in the way I behave. Um, I think, People don't know how to how to uh, sort of deal with this idea that oh you could that you can be yourself 
um, and you don't have to like sort of shave off the edges to be able to fit into you know the square peg into the round hole, but you could actually be a part of the work that you do professionally and personally and not feel like you have to leave any of it behind. Um, and I think that's an important thing to note, um, particularly in education, um, when, and as educators is something that we should really consider and reconcile with when we, when we work with children, when we work with the students that come into the public education system to see whether or not our practices mimic the kinds of behaviors that we expect for ourselves as adults in the system. Um, are we asking kids to shave corners and the edges off of that square peg so that they can fit into the round hole? Or do we just let them be um, when they walk into the school door? Um, my father always said to me, um, you're Hawaiian first and don't ever feel ashamed to announce that you are Hawaiian. Um, and to this day, I, I, I appreciate um, his diligence in making and reminding me to be a proud Hawaiian in everything that I do. So, uh, you know, I, you know, I come and, and so we come into the work that we do. I come from a very resilient um, Lahui, a group of Kanaka that, um, that through all of the challenges um, that were faced by our kupuna and that continue to be faced by our lahui within this aina that is native to us, but then oftentimes feels foreign uh, because of the current conditions that are in place. Um, um, you know, we persevere and we try to uh, embrace the, the values that our kupuna teach us um, and hold on to them and let those things be the things that define who we are. Um, and help to guide us in the work that we do. And so that's the, the kind of community that um, I come from. I'm really interested in these tensions, the tensions that you just alluded to between what is there and what is there, between our sense of I and our sense of we, between our sense of Hawaii as it as it was and Hawaii as it is now and how those two come together into what is um the, the tensions between between different cultures i'm also tremendously interested in this idea of creating an education system at least pragmatically that is nested within a bigger one a federal one and, and how those get resolved within a bigger system of why do we have education in the way that we do and and how do we work with local context before we get to that though I'll ask you the question we ask all our guests. How do you define learning? Okay, so so in Hawaiian, the word um, the word for learning and teaching is the same word. It's ao, uh, and it, and it, and it it makes me believe that um, that in any context, learning and teaching are the same thing. Um, and 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 one one story that I heard. Um, in some of the work that we do um, with our community organizations and particularly we call them the Ohana Va'a or the people that um, have brought navigation uh, to Hawaiian canoes, Hawaiian, Hawaiian navigation and, and Polynesian navigation back to the forefront of some of the work we do in Hawaii. Um, they share this story about um, Papa Mao Piailu who was uh, instrumental um, in returning the culture of navigation back to Hawaii. Um, he he was not from Hawaii, um, and he was from Micronesia, and and he mentored a lot of uh, folks that are currently the leaders of navigation in Hawaii. Um, but one of the stories that I heard about about Papa Mao is that he said, um, "Every day we make about five thousand decisions." And we don't even know that we're unconsciously and consciously, right? I think, I think as we move through life and as we move through our day's activities, learning is always taking place and it's not confined to a set of standards and it's not confined to the four walls of a classroom. Um, and then it's happening constantly. 
um, and, and it's a way for people to receive input, receive information, process the information, and then do something or do nothing with that information that they've received, right? Um, and so I feel like in, in that case, the term a'o probably is a better way to think about this concept of learning and, and, and to not you know, isolate the learning part of, uh, of, of the action of being in this environment, in this context of a'o separate from the teacher um, that provides that information as well. And whether that teacher be a, an actual person, uh, might be a bird sitting up, perched up on the roof. It might be um, the wind that's blowing. Um, you know, so we're not, con we're not confining this concept of learning to only to be the kind of direct instruction type of uh, activity that I think the current model of education um, uh, explains it to be. I think it's very narrow to think of it that way. Um, and I'm not saying that it's wrong or right. I'm just saying that uh, maybe we're not access accessing the full potential of that term when we limit it to certain ways of thinking about our certain definitions. And, and this is absolutely fascinating to me because a lot of the things that that we write about uh, and think about are are decentering the human moving beyond these anthropocentric frames that we have and certainly you highlight that the teacher student relationship is incredibly anthropocentric not only in terms of dominance of of uh, someone who is an all-knowing to someone who is just a bucket to fill but just the fact that it is based on humans where we learn from from animals we learn from the natural world but what you highlight that's particularly interesting is the non-linearity here that it's not about one to one as separate entities it's about the experience in between if i'm if i'm understanding correctly and it's that experience that both teaches us and from which we learn at the same time yes and then i think that's the difference between sort of the the levers and the takers right um, or the extraction and then the generative models of education. Right? And the, I don't know if you've, if you've seen the book, Ishmael, but in the book, he, the author describes this concept of the levers and the takers. And the takers are sort of this extractive culture where everything is made for the dominant human culture. Um, and then the extractive model means that maybe the humans are not the last thing to be, the, the last life form to have evolved, like maybe there's going to be an evolution of the human beyond the current understanding of what humans are, right? So, um, and so that we're just a part of that overall process. Um, so I think I think that in that way, it helps it helps to understand the difference maybe in the way we think about education or learning um, that it isn't just for the humans to benefit from something. But it also requires that there's a regeneration and a generation of action that gives back. Um, and in that way, I think the reciprocity of that definition of AO, where teaching and learning is happening in the same space, becomes more realized. And so bringing it down to the everyday and bringing it down to maybe what happens in schools in Hawaii, how do these concepts and these, these cultures work with a more uh, linear uh, Western dominated education system where there are certain outcomes that are expected that aren't necessarily about experience or community. They tend to be much more, again, linear, individualistic towards specific outcomes, which in, in many, many cases are, let's get you to the best university possible. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's been, that's been sort of a, um, sort of the, you know, one of the exciting things of the work that we that we do in the Office of Point Education is to kind of tackle the question about what does student success, what is the definition of student success? And is there a single definition of student success? That means that you go to school, uh, you get a degree, you go to college, you get a degree, and then you reach success, you get a good job, and then you reach success. Um, is there more to this definition than just the college and career ready pathway uh, of, of education. 
Um, and so, you know, I'd like to bring up the question about the definition of student success and what else could be included in that. Um, because as I alluded to a little bit earlier in, in the discussion about the, the sort of square peg round hole idea, I think in the current uh, model of education, there's like a monolingual monoculture expectation for what student success would look like. And that already um, excludes a lot of the people that are born into cultures that are not focused, like that are not as human centric um, as others might be. And it makes me think about whether or not the system actually is the best, the, the current education system is the best way to address um, all of the strengths and all of the gifts that our students actually bring to the doorway when they walk into our classrooms. And, 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 and then who gets to decide on whether we get to nurture the gifts and strengths of each individual child or whether we say, no, leave all of those at home and we're gonna, and if, it, if you don't fit, we're gonna shave them all off so that you can fit into the system. Um, I think I'd like to tackle that question in the Department of Education here in Hawaii. Um, and, and some of the work that we've done, and, and we talked a little bit about this um, with the uh, Naho Penao uh, system outcomes framework that part of the goal of that work is to make sure that we're making space for more people to feel a strong sense of belonging to our education system. And if the current design of our education system isn't doing that, then how do we transform as a system in order to make space for more of the students' gifts to show up in their education process? Um, and that's some of the work that we're trying to do now is to have those kinds of conversations that talk about who we are as a system and what we believe in and what we currently implement and practice and then what we might transform to and who might be there to help us set up different conditions so that we can start to shift towards embracing um, an approach to education that allows us to honor the gifts and strengths of each individual child. Um, it takes, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of uh, trauma that folks have experienced. Um, and then there's, so there's a lot of, there's a need for a lot of healing to take place. Um, but I think as people go, if we can create safe process for people to go through, um, you know, go through that process and kind of reconcile with whether what their current beliefs are um, and what they might want to transform to, um, there's enough wraparound services in our communities to be able to help lift them back up and, and support them in the way that they uh, need in order to make sure that they can also partner with others to make an education system that fits the needs of each individual child. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a lot because it'll require strong relationships um, and the right kinds of conditions for people to engage safely um, in hard conversations around what's best for each individual child and not just the, how do we get the individual child to meet the standardized uh, learning outcomes um, that every child should have under their belt once they leave the public education system. I find what's fascinating, the words that you use about trauma and healing and how it will take time. So often we have these programs that we bolt on that are supposed to fix things, these SCL frameworks that we talk about. And, and if we do this for you know a couple hours a week, then we'll, we'll help kids do this and that. Or, or if we implement this program, then we can address these competencies and, and we expect immediate returns. But by the next you know, a couple of years, next graduating class, whatever. But this is a very long process to create these relationships, to create the context, to shift mindsets because of the damage done over the last you know, three, 400 years uh, since, since the scientific revolution. Um, I, I'm wondering here, if you could tell us a little bit about the framework, which isn't a goal in itself, but perhaps it seems like 
a springboard to create those contexts. Tell us a bit about, about the framework, how it came about, what's different about it, and, and how it lives within the community. Yeah, so so the framework that I'm talking about, the uh, Nahopenao framework or the Ha framework, um, <clears throat> I think the process itself uh, of how it came about actually actually lends to and, and allows us to think about how it might be implemented um, more broadly. But it came out of this effort um, led by the, the Board of Education to what the Board of Education Chair Don Horner said at the time, to put the heart of education back in, uh, put the heart back into the education system. Um, and so the framework itself has six outcomes, has established that there are six outcomes um, that we accept um, are a part of the dispositions that we want to see, not just in the students and the adults of our public education system, but also in the way our, our system functions and, and the way that our system behaves. Um, the six outcomes include a strength, a strengthened sense of belonging, strengthened sense of responsibility, strengthened sense of excellence, strengthened sense of aloha, strengthened sense of total well-being, and a strengthened sense of Hawaii. Um, when the uh, the Student Activities Committee Chair Cheryl Lupinui, she was on the board, um, was charged with. Um, the task of investigating how to put the heart back into the education system. Um, she had convened a group of people to have to have this discussion, do some research, I mean, talk about what what Hawaii-based outcomes might look like. Um, and so when she did that, we had you know spent about six months doing some of the research and convening and, and sort of setting up the process to actually start, you know, drafting the outcomes. Um, and after after the I remember that after the last meeting that we had, we had developed these six outcomes, breath. Um, and it spelled out the acronym it was an acronym for the word breath. And we had not intended that 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 acronym was gonna gonna actually show up. Um it was a really loose conversation about how to how to outline, you know, these outcomes. And it initially started off with the conversation about belonging and whether or not we are a system that creates a sense of belonging or nurtures the conditions that lead to a sense of belonging and kind of just followed right around. Um, um, and, and, and then she had asked me to um, come up with a, a, a name for the outcomes. And so I said, oh, you know, they're the, they're the whole pena or they're the end results of learning and teaching. Um, and so the acronym for that is HA. Uh, which is in Hawaiian, the word means breath. Um, and, and we hadn't intended that that was going to line up in that way, but it, it did. Um, and, and we, and when we did, you know, acknowledge that we recognized right off the bat that, 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 um, our kupuna was sitting with us in the design and that their divine intervention put forth these words through our hands and through our, uh, you know, on, onto the paper, um, and and we knew that we were on the right track, and we knew that this was going to be something um, that we needed to make sure sat in the public education system. Um, so it continues to to grow and to be nurtured. Um, when that happened, and when the board passed the policy, and the sitting superintendent um, had, had agreed that this would be something that would be guiding our public education system, she, I remember. Her, uh, we were sitting, we were in her, she calls it the barn, um, but it's not a real barn. It's sort of this conference space, uh, garage space in her in her yard. Uh, and she says, uh, so are we really going to do this, Kali? And I said, I, said I, can, I can tell you this much. This is important work. Um, and this work will not happen overnight. It won't take three years. It won't take five years. This is generational change. Um, and so we have to, there's going to be a lot of stuff that we have to undo before we can, you know, make space, make safe space for people to like figure out, okay, so what's next? Um, and so this journey of Naho Penao has, is, it's a long journey. And along that journey, we sort of take, take stock of the indicators that tell us that 
the roots of its of this work is starting to sort of sort of it's starting to take root in below the surface um, by by marking by marking the amount of touches that schools um, have with the work of Nahupanao and the depth of those touches through professional development, through student engagements, um, through large convenings, and just making sure that we're sort of tracking and monitoring the way the root system is growing. Because every once in a while, we'll see something come up above the surface. It tells us, ah, yes, it's there. The root system is being strengthened over time. And now we're starting to see growth show up across the system in a system that, you know, has over 270 schools and about 170,000 students and about and over 25,000 employees. So, of course, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a long journey. But I think if we do enough to make sure that we're nurturing the right conditions, that root system will be solidified and we'll start to see more growth over time. And in addition to those numbers, there's also the parents, there's also the business, there's also the federal Our government, community partners, community partners the U.S. Uh, continental, that, that difference in culture, it, it's the, within the system. So, so it, it's... 7 billion people really at the end of the day. And, and, and I guess my, my, my question about this is what does, well, actually two part questions, which are, which are probably need to be unpacked a bit, but one, what is belonging? And two, how do we reconcile this idea of belonging in a national and perhaps international system that doesn't want us to belong because we have to stand out from the crowd in order to get to the universities we want or the jobs that we want. And that we, it's not just about individualism, it's about the competition of I'm different from everyone else. I'm better, please hire me or, or you know, make allow me to walk through your university halls. How do we reconcile those things? Yeah, you know, so this is hard, race to the top. Um, I think, um, just in its label, um, really set <laughs> education on its side, from my perspective, because essentially what we were saying to, to students was everybody needs to hurry up and race to be the best without thinking about uh, sort of the 7 billion people that are along for their job, that are also along for that journey, right? Uh, I was not born and raised to be an individual. I was born and raised to be a part of a community that nurtured relationships and ensured that there was a sustainable culture of that value system. Um, I think when we think about, you know, sort of uh, coming out of race to the top and, and sort of seeing um, what it did to our public education system, particularly as a race as a state that was participating in the race, um, I think that's the, that was the crux of the Board of Education's chair's question, is when we did that, what, were the, what, what happened? What were the impacts of, of what happened? Um, the, the achievement gap was actually getting wider and not closing, right? Because now we were, we're, we were investing resources in, a learning process that was still unfamiliar, that still didn't address the sense of belonging for students, right? And so those that belong kept going and those that didn't belong started to lag further and further behind. Um, I think that you know, when, we, when we consider federal policy, international policy, um, and this idea of this, this, this concept of individualism, um, I don't know you know, how to alter that path, I think. But I do think that it's better for Hawaii to do Hawaii um, and maybe find success in being who we are first before we can be anything else. Um, and maybe what that might do is offer a different way to think about this concept of individualism versus collectivism. Um, because within the collective ohana, there's still a need for each individual within that community to show up with their strengths and show up with their gifts. Um, I think what we don't want to see happen within that model though 
is to advance one um, to the detriment of others, but that we're all enhancing and enriching and advancing the collective together as we move forward. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what the resolution would be for a culture that thrives on um, racing to the top. Um, but but I think it is important for Hawaii to do Hawaii. And again, it's it's an important concept of rather than thinking about changing the whole system, the global system, working at a local level for what makes sense in that context, and that hopefully that will connect with other contexts that are similar, and then grow and and reverberate throughout the system, and 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 in fact change that way over a long period of time. Yeah, yeah, and that's what we see happening in our school communities is when they start to embrace their identities. Um, and they start to embrace uh, the identities of the the of the com- the members of their communities, uh, and kind of get on that same circle of being proud of who they are and where they're from. Um, I think they they're starting to do really good things and really big things. Um, and it may or may not match up to the standardized expectation of you know Western education and federal policy, but the confidence that gets generated when you have a sense, strong sense of belonging to your community or, and this sort of this obligation or this responsibility to others and to lift others up, um, I think provides a different way of thinking about what learning and teaching might be. Joanne McKeegan, who, um, who's a good friend of, uh, of, of the shows and, and uh, you know, of mine and, and a collaborator and, and who's from New Zealand uh, and talks about her Maori heritage, always says that um, when we start anything, it's about who we are as individuals and then who we are as a collective and, and working with the complementarities there and, and the embeddedness. And then from there, we can move on to anything else that has to do with learning, teaching, doing, acting, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And you have to be, you have to be solid on your own foundation. About, oh gosh, it's close to eight years ago, almost nine years ago, um, we set a group of Native Hawaiian educators convened what we call the Native Hawaiian Education Summit. Uh, and in 2014, um, the, the participants of this summit um, determined that the vision the vision uh, of for Hawaii would be um, an education system grounded in Hawaii first. Um, and that's the part about, you know, Hawaii doing Hawaii first. Um, and that when we can do Hawaii well, then we can consider this, that foundation as something to be able to um, step forward with, with a sense of confidence um, and also um, sense of aloha to be, to be able to share that, right? And, and, and it's not to be boastful, but it's to, to say like, here's who we are and here's what we have to offer take it or leave it, right? And, and we're willing to share it, but it's not, you don't have to take, we're not going to force it on you. Um, we're just going to, but we are going to say that this is who we are and we're going to work from this foundation. Um, I think it's with that kind of mindset that um, that um, the work of Naho Kena'o starts to sort of um, shift and, and create a system that's transforming to be sure and confident about who each school community really is um, and how they do what they do uh, to the best of their abilities, right? And this goes back to a point that you made earlier on about being models and and really also learning, or from what I gathered, learning by maybe imitating is the wrong word, but certainly seeing a model and trying to take on some of those dispositions, behaviors, ways of thinking. How, how does that work? And, and, and how does this idea of being a model kind of shift, again, the quote unquote traditional aspects and, and concepts of teaching and learning? Yeah, so, you know, um, in the culture, in, in, in Hawaiian culture, stories, stories are the data. Um, stories are the ways in which we, we are able to see each other. Um, and I think, you know, from an educational perspective, we spend a lot of time um, quantifying success through standardized tests and, and, and 
and even formative tests. Um, um, and, and there's no context, no real context, no real story uh, to add shape to those numbers. Um, I think I think the transformation or, or, or the, the shift that I'd love to see start to take more root to take root is this idea that qualitative data matters just as much as quantitative data. And then that way, when you can tell the story of your community, you can you can validate, or you can own your narrative, um, you can you can offer a lens, a perspective for people to be able to see a little bit about what's actually happening in your community. Um, and not to make standardized psychometric judgments based on a set of numbers only. And in that way, you can honor, I think, the differences of each member of the community to say, oh, we do it like this because our community is made up of this. And here are all of the individual qualities of our community. So we cannot do it in a standardized way because we have to make sure that we're nurturing the strengths and gifts of every member of the community. Um, and so, you know, when you ask that question, I think, I think the response for me is to, is to, is to suggest that, um, localizing the decision-making and localizing the empowerment to do what's best for the community should take priority over whether the numbers and the psychometric, um, validity and reliability of a test um, should be the definition of success of that community and the members of that community or not. So this could go in many directions. So I, I would just throw out a couple ideas here and you pick up which one, which one you want. First of all, this is different from portfolios of, of learning, which um, uh, you, you know, to, to me seem like, let's put up my favorite math test and and have that be evidence. And, and we think of that as qualitative, but that still remains separation and individualistic and, and really doesn't tell the story. Because what you're mentioning is going back again to the experience that happens and the learning happens within the experience, the in-betweenness, rather than me as an individual who gets, a, you know, some kind of letter score on, 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 on that math test. The other thing that strikes me is if the community comes first, and the stories of the community are such an important part in the overall experience and in how the individual fits within that. The actions that come from learning and, and putting the community first means that we learn for the community first. The actions are about helping the community. The actions are community-based rather than um, vague, rather than content-driven, rather than um, you know learning something that doesn't have the community thriving as an outcome. I, I hope I'm making myself clear, but but like the learning happens within a context where we are working for the community rather than to fill our own minds because somebody says that that's what we have to learn with the curriculum. Exactly. Exactly. When we're when we're when we're considering the benefit to the I as well as the we. And we can see the reason and we can honor the reason why those, the relationship between those two things are important. Um, I think everything that happens in there actually uh, lift, uplifts the entire community. Um, and so, and so, and so that's a, that's a really different way, I think, to think about it. Uh, who measures it? I know that I know that uh, funding drives a lot of the decisions around who gets to measure what success looks like, um, and that's what the quantitative standardized assessments are for. And so, you know, for for a group of our schools that are teaching in in Hawaiian, um, you know, we had to we had to play that game, and so we had to create a tool that was that was gonna act as the, the assessment, standardized assessment for our students that were learning in a Hawaiian language immersion program so that we could have a tool to report student achievement to the federal government. But, it, but when we do that, um, how we approach the narrative around what that's for is important. 
We did that in order to appease a need so that we could continue to do the other stuff that's way more, more important to us than just this quantitative measure of success. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that our schools don't use the data from the, from the standardized assessment, they do. But it's not the tool, it's not the end of education and success. It is a tool, it is a data point amongst other data points that tell us a fuller story of what's actually happening in our school. And I wonder about that being a sort of a different way to approach um, assessment and accountability and how much space we actually make nationally and internationally for stories to help uh, inform practice. Because one of the things that will be very difficult to measure is the positive feedback loop of action to help the community thrive, which like leads to more, you know, cultures of of this kind of action, which leads to more, which leads to more. That's that's a process which is very difficult to measure. And even if you do measure, it doesn't matter because later on it it changes, right? It's 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 a fluid and, and it's dynamic. Um, I I I want to um, just ask you one more question, um, and that's really a little bit the et cetera section, and and just to allow you to express what's on your mind, what are some of the things that are on your horizons, what are your hopes, maybe some of the, the challenges that you see coming up. What What is going on in your head, looking ahead the next X amount of time? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think for Hawaii, um, we're in an interesting space right now, and particularly for the indigenous population of Hawaii. Um, there, there are a couple of things that are happening in, uh, at the legislature, at the state capitol, um, that tell me that um, that there's been increased value um, for understanding um, the relationship that Hawaiians have with Hawaii, the relationship that the indigenous population has with this aina. Um, that they call home, that they call their kupuna, um, to the point that um, several agencies and and, and several um, uh, bills that were passed into law has increased the amount of funding that's available to honor Native Hawaiians, if you will. Um, it's been a long time coming, though. It's been a really long time coming. Um, and, you know, it's it's money, but if the voices are not there to inform what to do, what they should do with that money, then it might all be for naught. Um, but I think the fact that this legislation went through and that there's a large sum of funding that's attached to it um, tells me that something's happening across the street at the, at the legislature. Um, that shows an increased value for uh, indigenous ways of knowing. I think in our public education system, we have current, our current leadership has um, been actively engaging in promoting Aina-based education, actively engaging in, in, in promoting Naho Penao, uh, actively engaging in um, Better resourcing our Hawaiian language immersion schools, um, which is also another indicator to me that there's increasing value for Hawaiian ways of knowing, indigenous ways of knowing and thinking, um, and even learning, if you will. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that 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 what I see on the horizon horizon is sort of this return to indigenous ways of knowing uh, as a way to inform who we might be as a public education system. I know that um, with a lot of the um, Aina issues that are going on in the community, I don't, I don't know if you've heard about uh, the Red Hill um, uh, fuel uh, tanks. Um, so Hawaii is an island, we have aquifers, um, and there's a fuel tank that sits right above the aquifer that's run by the United States Navy. Um, and it came to be known that the Navy did not maintain it. And there were two um, spills um, that got into the water system uh, and that made a lot of people sick um, on the Naval base. Um, 
and potentially is threatening to uh, um, end up in the aquifers that supplies water to the entire island, um, or to a large portion of the island, which means that we wouldn't have water, drinking water, uh, or water to use it in, in our, you know, in our homes and in our, in our, in our buildings. Um, and so that's really been a huge controversial topic around this concept of indigenous ways of knowing and, and relating to Aina and thinking about Aina. Um, I don't know if you've heard, you know, a few years ago, there's the issue on Mauna Kea um, and, and TNT, 30, 30 meter telescope, wanting to plant this telescope right at the top, on, on the top of the aquifer of Kauhe that they would, you know, blast into the mountain and put this huge telescope on top of it. And uh, that project has been delayed because of the resilience of our people who said, not, not on our island, not to our pupuna. Um, and so I think a lot of that uh, activity, the pandemic, and then sort of try, trying to figure out the economic um, uh, impacts of the pandemic on a tourism, on a, on a state economic plan that's heavily dependent on tourism and, and the military, like that's all kind of come to uh, come to light and come to surface, right? And so we, like, people are starting to ask, like, what are we doing? Um, and so if people are gonna ask those questions and tackle those hard questions, then let's do it together and let's think about how to prepare a generation of students that can make better decisions about living in an island community that makes space for every culture to thrive in um, and feel like a sense of belonging to, um, but that also honors that this aina is also our kupuna and that in order for us to belong to it, it must also belong to us. Listen, I, I really want to thank you. I really want to thank you for 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 telling these stories and, and openness and getting us to think about really some of the challenges that are there and it's not easy, it's long. Um, and, and there's no quick fix, but we have to do the work, the, the inner work, the, the hard work. Um, so, so, so thank you so much for, for your time. Absolutely. So that's why I want to have more opuna because we got to do this stuff. <laughs> this is the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And we're very excited to embark on our fourth season. We are, as always, in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Check out the Coconut Thinking website on www.coconut-thinking.design. You'll find articles, podcasts, resources, presentations, and a whole bunch of stuff on some of the work that we do and some of the work that our collaborators do. Always looking for thinking and action that contribute to the thriving of the BioCollective. And of course, our articles and those of other writers are on www.intrepidednews.com. So until next time, hope to hear from you soon. Leave a comment and be well.